even though the transition seems incredibly scary, when you have done it, your art business really takes off. Welcome to the Passionate Painter Podcast. I'm your host, Caroline Italia Carlson. Whether your art is a full-time career or your side gig, if you are passionate about creating art, this podcast is for you. Don't worry about taking notes. I'll do that for you. And you can find them at passionatepainterpodcast.com. Hey there. Glad to be back with you for another episode of the Passionate Painter Podcast. But first, an apology. It turns out that while episode 30, which is part two of my interview with Eric Rhodes, was produced with part one, it did not in fact get published. I'm not sure what happened with the tech. I did tell you that episode 30 was ready to go, and it was, but it was not online. I am sorry. It's online now at passionatepainterpodcast.com slash episode 30. That's passionatepainterpodcast.com slash episode three zero. And now I'd like to give some shout outs. Thank you to listener and artist Judy Robinson of Gainesville, Florida for leaving the review. Your podcast is great. I love it. Thank you, Judy. It wouldn't exist without listeners like you that inspire me every day. You can check out Judy's art on her website at judyrobinsondesigns.com. Next, I'd like to give shout-outs to Colleen White in Portland, Maine, Edita Griegperita in London, and Marilyn Boire in Escanaba, Michigan, who have graciously given me their time in course calls to talk about what they'd like to experience in my upcoming portrait course. Your input has been priceless in building the best course I can to support you on your journey to becoming a confident portrait painter. If you'd like to do a course call with me in exchange for testing out my new course for free, I'm taking a limited number of additional course calls before the end of November. Go to passionatepainteracademy.com and click on the big pink button to select a date and time for your call. On to today's interview with South African painter Malcolm Dewey. It was a great privilege to speak with Malcolm. He's an incredible painter with a true calling to teach. I personally love Malcolm's courses, and I recommend them highly. He is a true gentleman and very generous in sharing information with other artists on his blog, podcast, and in his courses. I've broken the interview into two parts for listening convenience. Part two is available now, I promise, at passionatepainterpodcast.com slash episode 38. That's passionatepainterpodcast.com slash episode 38. Living the life of a full-time artist is not simple, but Malcolm Dewey has been able to achieve this through many years of commitment to his art. Having started in graphic design, Malcolm was attracted to fine art through his love of landscape and nature. Impressionism in its contemporary form is the driving force behind Malcolm's painting ideas. Malcolm has devoted much time to studying form and color to create his paintings. Together with a loose brushwork style, Malcolm's paintings are filled with light, color, and movement. Through teaching his method to thousands of artists worldwide over the years, Malcolm has strengthened his painting skills. His aim is to describe his painting with an economy of shape, but without compromising on paint and generous brushwork. 
He teaches this approach with equal generosity to his art students, both online and in workshops. Malcolm has written several books about the artist's life. He is a dedicated blogger and contributes to publications like the South African Artist Magazine. His painting courses are popular worldwide, and he is one of the top-rated art teachers online. It is in front of the canvas that Malcolm is happiest. Being able to pass this on to his collectors is a personal joy. Malcolm believes that aesthetics still has an important part to play in painting. He says that in an art world where conceptualism threatens the appreciation of beauty, his mission is to actively create paintings that will delight collectors for years to come. Malcolm, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Caroline. Great to be here. It's great to have gotten a hold of you. I'm so in love with your courses. I'm in the middle of another one right now. I've taken a few and I'm looking forward to signing up for the series. I'm really excited about it. And I love the structure that you've set up for your online course. Thank you. Um, I'm quite uh, honored to have you taking one of my courses. That's great. You know, it's funny. I noticed that as I was setting up for your interview, I think I took your first course before I even had the podcast going because I just love the way that you teach and it's thorough and it's really comprehensive. Oh, <laughs> oh well, thank you. Um, I just I just do the, the courses and I'm always amazed that people like them. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's very humble. So have you always been that comfortable in front of a camera? Um, no. Well, if you knew me, you'd probably know that um, I'm one of the biggest introverts around. And and it's funny because I've I've always ended up doing things in in my life that forced me to speak and talk in front of people. And it's the last thing I ever want to do, to be honest. <laughs> and I thought that getting in front of a camera would be extremely stressful. And I suppose it was because when I watch some of my older videos, it's unbearable actually because I'm wound so tight that I actually feel sorry for myself. But practice does help and I, I suppose I'm not entirely comfortable even now with doing the, the videos, but it's has improved a lot. And, you know, I just knew I had to front up and do them. And it's become easier. And as long as you're comfortable with your subject, I think that's the critical thing. And I was very comfortable with painting. It was sort of painting as the broke the ice. You know, I didn't have to. It wasn't about me. It was about the painting. And I guess I let that do the the work for me. And that made it a lot easier. Yeah, I know what you mean. I'm an introvert, too. And I think people are surprised when podcasters say they're introverts. But it's a whole different ballgame getting in front of a camera. And for me, I've been practicing on the camera as well, because I know that I believe for my own outreach, I want to start talking to my people with a camera. And I think that a lot of people ingest information that way. And it took me a long time to get comfortable talking to a camera. And sometimes it still does. I think it does require work. It's not something that comes naturally to everybody. Yes, it does take work. Um, but you you just got to dive in. There's no other way to do it. You got to press record and just, and just go for it and uh, see what happens. And then 
with a lot of editing, you may end up with something <laughs> at the end. Exactly. Well, and, and I've heard the really helpful advice in the past that it's really not, as you said, about you. It's about your students. And if you've taken personality tests, I've taken, I don't know, a bazillion of them in trying to understand how I can convey information the best. And my personality for Strength Finder is the advocate. And so if I'm helping others, I'm in my zone. And so if I can remember I'm talking to a student through that camera, then I'm good. Pretty much. <laughs> I still do a lot of editing. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, no, you're right. The bottom line is, is be useful and be helpful. And then you've done your job. You're right. So your work is absolutely stunning. I love the painterly brush strokes and your loose painting style and the gorgeous vivid colors. Thank you. You're welcome. How did you transition to being a full-time artist? Okay, that's, that was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done, but something I'm most grateful for as well. I always wanted to be an artist right through school. I, that is the only subject I ever wanted to do right through high school, primary school, the whole thing, and then finished school, ended up studying law. And that was simply, I guess, because it was the days when this was back in the 80s. And it was an extremely scary idea for everybody that I wanted to be an artist, I suppose, and ended up doing law with, joined a cousin of mine at university. And he's still a lawyer, um, but I fortunately got myself out of that eventually. And just by, by chance, I'd always been doing art on the side, drawing, painting every now and then. But one day I just, there was a public holiday and I still remember it so vividly. And one of my sons had a set of pastels and he put them aside and I picked them up and, and started doodling with them. And my wife said, could you do a, do a picture for me? And that was my first commission. <laughs> not, well, not really my first one in a long, long time, and and um, they all count. Yeah, and it turned out pretty good by my standards. I was quite surprised how much I enjoyed it, and I just realised this is something been missing in my life. And by the end of the year, we got involved with one of those outdoor Christmas markets, and I put a, a bunch of my paintings. And I sold it. I think I sold three of them. And I was, it was the first inkling I had that my paintings in, in that sort of style, in the, in the fine art style, you know, had a potential market. Um, I, I was always into graphic design, commercial type of art. That's what I really wanted to get into when I left school. But anywho, I got through that market and I thought, this is great. And I, I just kept on with it. But I had to paint in the evenings or on the weekends. I had my own law practice, a small law practice, but we were very busy and that was extremely demanding. What kind of law? Property and commercial. As you can imagine, it tends to suck you in. And you've got a lot of commitments, and it was such a stressful time for me because while it has all of those stresses, it is 
a sure thing as a career and we were doing quite well. However, my wife and I, I guess we're approaching being burnt out in, in that career. My wife was also in the practice with me as an office manager and we had our three children and spending quite a bit of time with them as well, trying to help them through school. So it was quite a, a lot of stress, but we were of the same mind when it came to wanting something else. And for me, it looked like art was the real option. So now to get to really to answer your question, um, the transition took me about three to four years which is, is quite a long time, but in the grand scheme of things, it was really nothing. And I knew what the outcome was going to be. I had, had that visualized, I had it planned that I would be a full-time artist and making a living from it. I also knew that I wasn't going to be a glorified hobby artist and try and survive the rest of my life on savings that would not have worked. I would have run out of that soon enough. So it had to be sustainable. It had to pay for itself. And there was no choice about that. So I had to approach it as an entrepreneur, which meant I had to study everything I could about the business side of art, as well as improving my technique and studying art, studying every aspect of it. I had to make up for lost time. I knew that my painting had to improve dramatically. So I literally would paint every single day. And I did that probably solidly for about two years, give or take here or there. But it was frenetic. Now, you know, despite what it may sound like, <laughs> I knew it was fun. I, I enjoyed the prospect of it all. And but it took those number of years to unwind myself from my practice. Um, I wasn't going to sell the practice. I wanted to finish off what I had to do and sent clients off to other practitioners. Um, so I wanted no strings, um, no nothing to follow me. Uh, and I made it, eventually it was a clean break, but it took its time. And then from that point, you know, I had worked out where my potential income streams would be. I knew that it could not just be selling paintings. I had to look at the teaching side of it as well. So I'll talk a bit more about later perhaps, but the whole idea of multiple streams of income was firmly entrenched in my, my mind for many years. As a business person, that was an integral part of surviving financially. So I had to bring that into my art practice as well. And so I focused on how many streams of income could an artist bring in besides paintings alone. And with the internet, that meant I could bring in online teaching, marketing, and physical workshops and uh, exhibitions and all of those different areas intellectual property, books, DVDs, whatever, all came into it. And that made it sustainable and I could hit the ground running, as it were. And the last word on that is, even though the transition seems incredibly scary, when you have done it, your art business really takes off. 
because then you can give it your full focus. And I'm pretty confident it'll work for anyone. I'm on that road myself. And I understand exactly what you're saying. I'm also looking at the teaching as one of the income streams for my business. And I do think it's important to think in terms of streams of income because you have to diversify. And I think it's important to have things that are scalable. And so, of course, with online teaching, you can scale that and take on numerous students as well as focus. I I love your business model. You have the tier system. Tier one is the student accessing your content. Tier two is the same plus more and you get the feedback from you and then tier if i'm getting these correct and then tier three is more interaction with you with actual coaching is that right yes that's that is my call it the flagship teaching that i do online and i do have that tier system it's great and yeah you know and and it's a good thing because it does very often someone somebody will start in tier two and then want to transition to the top line coaching. So it's a good way to get to know people as well. Yeah, I'll be signing in there soon myself. So you'll see me on your rosters. All right. Excellent. And so with those multiple streams of income, you've got the classes, you've got lots of videos. You're very prolific on video, which is amazing to me. And you have your podcast. So how do you break up your time to tend all the various income streams? Do you, for instance, produce your own podcasts and videos? Do you have help? How, how does your business model look in actual application? Caroline, I, I'm probably the, the worst at delegating. And I'm also <laughs> the worst diary keeper you can find. <laughs> this may be something to do with my former career as well, because Every attorney I ever met thrived on pressure and stress and would leave everything to the last minute. And um, sometimes I think I I must be crazy, but I I guess the more time I have to prepare, the less preparation I'll do. (laughs) Maybe that's not quite fair, but the thing is, I've got a general idea of what I want to do for each month. For instance, I know I need to have at least four videos for YouTube, two blog posts, and I've got to give some attention to marketing. And I have a new course I'm working on, and I'm also trying to update or refine an existing course. And that's more or less the structure of the month. One thing, though, feeds on to another and I try and repurpose as much of the work I'm doing. For instance, a YouTube video gets turned into a blog post, and a blog post can get turned into a podcast. That was my next question, is repurposing the content. And it makes sense to go in that order. Record your video and then grab the audio from it. That makes a big difference. And then also the social media marketing side of it very often is simply generated from that work that's already been done, images that I've had to take photographs of or video. You know, I I will capture a few seconds of that and turn it into an Instagram video, also a Pinterest video and a few other bits and pieces. I must be honest, I don't live for social media marketing. I think it is a big distraction for many artists and if it's, it starts getting in 
to your creative time, um, that's a problem. I agree. Yeah, and in between all of that, just everyone who's an artist will know that top of mind is producing top quality art. Now, I always try to approach each month with the aim of trying to produce my best painting. Whether it happens or not, you know, that's that's not the, the real issue. It's just this month I want a standout piece of art. And when I do create something that I feel really happy about, then that that's fantastic. And I know that the next month I'll want to do something better and so on. And that's pretty much how I expect to live the rest of my life. The art is number one. And if I'm remembered for anything one day, it will be my painted great paintings. The rest is just, um, it's just decoration. The, the most important thing is, is the art itself. So, you know, if I don't have time and I've got to sacrifice video creating time or this or that or any type of content, it's not the end of the world provided I've put something into producing a good painting. I, I agree with that. And I've turned, you know, at the beginning, early days of the podcast, I, I had to focus a lot of lifting on getting that off the ground and a lot of production time. And I do produce the shows. But now if it takes away painting time, I do the painting first, especially working around a day job, as you mentioned before. I think it's really important, even if you can devote only an hour a day you know, 10 minutes at my easel turns into three hours. So if I can at least start, I'll get in at least an hour or two of painting every day. And then I work everything else around it. And I just have to be merciless about that dedication to the painting time comes first, and then everything else will fall into place. Exactly. And I do find the best moments of the day are when I'm painting. Um, it's definitely the happiest time. Yes. Um, there's nothing else comes quite close to it. And so, you know, it's, it's never a loss. Even if the painting doesn't work out, I've enjoyed the time. Exactly. So let me interject a quick question here that we didn't talk about, but how do you know when a painting is done? Mm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's all sorts of philosophies about that, isn't it? Yes, and I want yours. You know, there's, there's Da Vinci who says it's just abandoned, and then everyone else will say, well, when you've got nothing worthwhile to add to the painting, then it's done, and it goes on. That's probably the closest I can answer it is I know that when I stand back and look at it, there's nothing significant I can do to it. If the, the drawing is fine, if there's nothing that looks too distorted or, or incorrect, that'll be sort of my last few checks. But provided, you know, all the main things are in place and I can see a light effect, that is just part of my, my painting approach. I must have the sense that the light that I wanted to depict in the painting, if that has been done then I think everything else is going to follow along. I'd rather have somebody, when they look at a painting of mine, they must appreciate the light. And if they feel there's a light-filled painting, 
and there's good color, the painting is done. But more than that, I can't really say. I think it is a challenge knowing when to stop and when to, you know, when you start feeling that the painting is getting tight and um, you are fiddling with with small brushes, that's a good indication. If you're holding a small brush, you probably have finished the painting long ago. <laughs> you know, towards the end of the paintings, they start to torment me. And I, I start saying, why do I do this? And I tell my husband, this painting is trying to kill me. And so sometimes I just need someone to remove it from me. Yeah, um, my wife tries to help now and then, but it could go badly <laughs> if, if I'm feeling a bit uptight about it and she makes a comment on that then I'll give her a dirty look yeah and she'll leave <laughs> but very often then I'll end up probably fixing it whatever she suggested because she tends to be right most of the time oh my gosh and uh, we have a laugh about it the next day you know but uh, I think it's a making of a good marriage Malcolm she's right most of the time yes absolutely and but for the most part, I just, as I said, if, if I'm happy with the light in the painting and it's got a good bit of color going, I'm, I'm normally perfectly good with it. That's great. I have a cartoon. Actually, I'm also a professional smartass. I make cartoons. And one of my favorites is me looking at a painting I'm doing and asking my husband, what do you think? And his response is, can I just tell you that your dress makes you look fat? <laughs> Because it's it's that touchy, you know, and he's usually right, too. But what's hard with the input of others, especially my husband, as an example, whom I adore, he will look at a painting sometimes and tell me it doesn't look right. And then he won't tell me why. He doesn't know why. He just knows it doesn't look right. And then I'm just annoyed. Yeah, or they, or they stand there and they, they look at it, <laughs> trying to say something, but not. And the stress of that is amazing. This wraps up part one of my interview with painter and instructor Malcolm Dewey. You can listen to part two now at passionatepainterpodcast.com slash episode 38. That's passionatepainterpodcast.com slash episode 38. Don't forget, if you're interested in testing out my new portrait course for free, sign up for a course call at passionatepainteracademy.com. I've added a few more slots before the end of November. If you're across the world and the Eastern time zone doesn't work for you, you can email me from the calendar to arrange something more convenient. Until next time, go make something. <laughs>